Get lit. Welcome back to Get a Little Lit, uh, the miniature episode of the Get Lit podcast, where we talk about the literary adjacent features that might not have enough information for a full episode or might not be directly related to an author, but are worth telling nonetheless. I'm your host, Steph Sfars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker, who can't wait to hear about the spooky things that you have in store for us. Yes, just in time for Halloween, I thought it would be perfectly appropriate for us to release a little lit episode about some print history um, and some specifically some books that maybe would make really excellent Halloween stories. So the next time you're at a campfire, feel free to bust out one of these stories. I know they'll be a hit. Uh, Just talk about this history of print culture um, and printing history. Stephanie and I have no other friends. (laughs) We don't need to tell them that. So the inspiration behind this episode actually came from two books that I uh, just finished reading and I'm in the process of reading. The first of which is called The Mad Men's Library, which is like this exquisite compendium beautifully photographed and illustrated with all of these really interesting and strange manuscript stories would highly recommend it. Um, And the one that I'm reading right now called Printer's Error. So I would recommend both of those if you're interested in print culture and the history of how printing evolved because they're very good. And like I said, these were some of the inspirations for the pieces that we're going to be highlighting in this episode. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. I will say that the second and third stories that we're going to be telling on this podcast do have to do um, with, I guess, human skin. So if medical talk and terminology uh, makes you uncomfortable or anything that has to do with sort of like doctoring, I might recommend that you skip over those middle parts because they are a little bit gruesome. But uh, if that's right up your alley, then listen up because we've got some cool stories for you. So the first book that I wanted to highlight is called The Grand Grimoire. And this book is actually located in the Vatican's secret archives, which obviously makes it very interesting to me. Um, Who isn't interested in secret historical vaults in the Vatican? Stephanie, I know we've said this a lot, but is this a national treasure kind of scenario where we'll have to explore the Vatican's secret vaults? Yes. Take notes. Uh, Here (laughs) we go. We're in the market for a showrunner. So this book was allegedly discovered in the tomb of Solomon in 1520, but the actual historical records that it started to appear was 1750. And this was, this is sort of like a dark spell book of sorts that had to do with summoning Satan, of course. So the work itself is divided in half, and the first half of the book contains instructions for summoning demons, and then the tools, how to build the tools to make the demon do your own bidding. So it's kind of like a like a DIY manual for getting your own demon and telling it what to do, which sounds just kind of fun. I feel like this could be um, a British Bake Off spinoff. <laughs> it's like build your own demon controlling devices and like uh, it could be hosted the same way 12 contestants and their demons could just pit against each other like I think there's a lot going on here Stephanie I'm just coming up with a whole bunch of television ideas right now right and I'll just say that there might be a really good reason that you are in structural engineering <laughs> But anywho, the second book itself is also divided in half. So now we have halves of a half. Um, And the first part is called The Sanctum Regnum. And the second part is called Secrets de l'Arc Magnique 
de Grand Grimoire, Secrets of the Magic Art of the Grand Grimoire. It's a very long title. So the Sanctum Regnum contains instruction for making pacts with the demon. Um, and then Secrets contains simple spells and rituals, you know, just your household spell book, so to speak. Um, and the, <laughs> this particular book also describes several demons and the rituals to summon them specifically. Uh, so not only your own demon, but also maybe major, bigger demons to begin with. Um, it also includes spells in that second section for winning the lottery, talking to spirits, being loved by a girl, and making yourself invisible. So unsurprisingly, this book sold incredibly well. Um, and, you know, for, I guess, more or less words, it became definitely a bestseller and was displayed in bookshops all over Europe. So wow. despite the fact that it was banned uh, and eventually confiscated by a lot of the Vatican's um, henchmen, I guess, uh, throughout the course of history and burned because of its evil uh evil texts uh definitely one worth reading so if you're looking for something to do this halloween maybe grab yourself a copy of the grand grimoire and summon your own demon i know i will great so the second story that i'm going to tell this might be one like i said for more sensitive listeners you might want to skip over um but i'm going to be talking about two books that have bound in human skin so there aren't many of these books in existence. Um, the earliest ones that we have date back to about the 13th century, but the most popular period, so to speak, um, is the 16th through 18th centuries. This is where we have most of our contemporary or modern examples. This is where most of the examples that we still have come from. So the first book that I'm going to bring up is the Henry Garnet book. And this 17th century book uh, revolves around the 1605 gunpowder plot, um, which was a plot to destroy Parliament and King James I. So this is very controversial. Everybody maybe knows or has ringing in their head, remember no, remember the 5th of November, right? Yeah. Six? Um, fit fourth? <laughs> we do not remember. Not a particularly effective rhyme, but something in early November. So it's actually coming up. Um, in On May 3rd, 1606, the head of the Jesuit church was executed outside St. Paul's Cathedral in London for this plot um, to bury 36 barrels of gunpowder under the British Parliament and blow it up, thus destroying the British government at the time. Hmm. So, um, a book called A True and Perfect Relation of the Whole Proceedings Against the Late Most Barbarous Traitors, Garnet, a Jesuit, and His Confederates, that's the title, end quote, um, has a bunch of speeches and evidence from the, t uh, from the trials. Um, but Father Henry Garnet was involved in this gun plot, and he was tried and executed, and they took his skin and bound that book in it. So the whole book itself is about six uh, inches high and four inches wide. And uh, it went off up for auction a couple of years ago, which I think is kind of interesting. So you could, yeah, you could have the trials of the gunpowder plot bound in the skin of one of the people who was caught and tried for it. Who was the intended audience of this specific book? I don't know. <laughs> How odd. 
Right. Um, the second book skin story that I'm going to tell, so again, keep fast forwarding if you skip this and you heard book skin book, just keep going, uh, is actually called or known colloquially as Burke's skin book. Um, this is a little bit later. 1828, a pair of serial killers named William Burke and William Hare murder 16 people over the course of 10 months um, in good old Scotland. They masquerade themselves as body snatchers, um, which was very popular at the time as medicine was evolving. Doctors would pay a lot of money to get corpses and cadavers so they could further medical advancement. Unfortunately, these two men, instead of digging up people, which also was illegal, murdered them instead. And eventually, this takes place in Edinburgh. They get caught, and they both get tried, obviously, for these crimes. So Hare turns in evidence and winds up getting released, but Burke takes this blame and is sentenced to death. Um, He's later, after he dies, uh, privately dissected, and his skin is eventually turned into a couple different things, including Burke's skin pocketbook. Um, the front says Burke skin pocketbook in like beautiful gold lettering. Um, and then executed January 28th, 1829, uh, as well. So the original pencil that came with the pocketbook is actually still inside the covers today. And it's held at the Surgeon's Hall, which is part of the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. And you can go see it today. Fantastic. Yes. Um, If you're interested, there is a really fantastic podcast um, about Burke and Hare, an entire series uh, called Tenfold More Wicked. And the uh, woman, Kate Winkler Dawson, who's behind it, is a true crime historian. And her entire first season is actually based on Burke and Hare. So would definitely recommend giving that a listen. It was really, really well produced and really well done. Excellent. So I have two more stories to finish off. If you've been skipping, we'll go ahead and come on back. We uh, we got to the, the tough parts and we're through them. Um, but the next one that I'm going to talk about is, of course, about witches. I would be undue if I did not bring up witches. And um, this one is more popular, I think, than the others that I've referenced. It's called the Malleus Maleficarum, a.k.a. the Witch's Hammer. And this book is known as the first witch hunt manual, so to speak, that became popular during uh, the witch trials uh, of 14 through 1600. So it's a theological and legal document, actually, and was written by two Dominican uh, individuals, so part of the Dominican church, Johann Sprenger, um, who is from Germany, and then Heinrich Kramer um, from Salzburg, Austria. And the two of them combined their uh, expertise... I put that in quotes (laughs) Um, because this work actually winds up spurring on some of the witch hysteria in Europe. So in 1484, Pope Innocent uh, basically declares witchcraft to be illegal. Uh, There's a passage in Exodus in the Bible, Exodus 22, 18, that says, quote, you shall not permit a sorceress to live, end quote. And so this was all the basis for witchcraft to be completely banned and destroyed um, and for the witch hunts to really begin. So the book itself is divided into three parts. Uh, The first part is talking about uh, the depravity of witches and um, basically stating that 
any witness can testify that a witch exists. So regardless of your credentials, you could be, you know, and considering the the time period that this is in, there weren't really a lot of citizens with social standing. So you could be literally anyone, but your testimony would be considered legitimate. And so it kind of defines the legality of what a witch is and, and how we should try them. Egality to maintain the status quo. Exactly. <laughs> Part two is just stories about witches. Like every myth that you can kind of imagine that comes with witchcraft is kind of defined in the second part. Basically what they do, their ability to transform, they ride during the night, they make compacts with the devil. So everything that witches are supposed to be accused and have the powers to do are outlined in part two of this book. I sort of like that part. Right? That one, may, that one's much more interesting, I think. Yes. Um, And then part three outlines the legal proceedings for what a witch trial is. Um, Torture is sanctioned as a means of securing confession. um, And both lay people and secular authorities are called upon to help uh, exterminate these supposed witches. So from 1486 to 1600, 28 editions different editions of Malleus are published um, and accepted as authoritative sources of information. Can you imagine? All right, kids, open your textbook up to the witch trial uh, chapter. And we're going to go over, uh, can they sink or float? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's about uh, as credible as that book is. And so I think, again, definitely worth a historical mention there as well. Um, so that, in, in short essence, is Malleus Maleficarum. Hmm. The last text that I wanted to feature actually involves a Ouija board. So we're going to go back in time, or I guess jump in time from a relative timeline here, um, to a text called Japheron, a novel written from the Ouija board. <laughs> in 1917, a medium named Emily Grant Hutchings claimed that Mark Twain wrote a novel called Jap Heron through the Ouija board seven years after his death. So a Ouija board was a way to talk to dead people and connect with spirits. It became increasingly popular in the United States after the Civil War. Uh, If you can imagine the sheer amount of death, entire family tree and lines had been wiped out and people were incredibly eager to find some way to connect with their lost family members. So the Ouija board rises in popularity and uh, so much so that lots of these uh, ghost written, I guess, novels literally came into being. So people and publishers made rules for these ghost novels. And it was said that any kind of novel written through this ghostly encounter through a Ouija board needed to be credited not to the medium who did the actual writing, but to the author himself. So, obviously, after the publication of this book, um, Clara Clemens, who's Mark Twain's daughter, does not want this, like, absolute garbage coming out, right? Her father is a famous author. He clearly did not write this book because he's been dead for seven right. years. So she she files a lawsuit in the Supreme Court against Hutchings and her publisher on June 8th of 1918. But because Clemens and her publishers were not able to prove that the book was not written by Mark Twain, like his ghost, the lawsuit um, kind of ended with Hutchings either having to admit the book was fraudulent 
or surrender all the profits to the Twain estate. So Hutchings never retracted her claims, but the lawsuit was eventually dropped when she agreed to destroy all the existing copies and cease publication. But I think that's like a really hilarious, like I just really like that that happened at one point in time in American history. Mark Twain's ghost wrote a novel, but not really. Yes, and it makes me so upset because the burden of proof is not on the person saying it was not written by the ghost of Mark Twain through you as a medium. It should be on the medium. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So I just wanted to highlight um, some really kind of wacky books from history that I thought you would all enjoy. Uh, Like I said, just in time for Halloween. So I hope that this was a a good little lit uh, episode for all of you to enjoy um, by October 31st and thereafter. Because who doesn't want a ghost story around Christmas anyway? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I know it made my Halloween spookier, Stephanie. So uh, I'll have to pick up some... uh some demon recipe books and uh, uh, some human skin books and uh, a Ouija board, and I'll write my own novel. Excellent. Those might run a a high bill, so I might try to isolate one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Let us know how it goes. Uh, Well, happy Halloween, uh, listeners. If you uh, have any other fun ghost stories to share with us, please go out and do. We really enjoyed doing the research for this episode. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it, so hopefully you do too. But until we see you next time, uh, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one thing.